0: Tonight on Arena, Sofia Coppola on her new film Priscilla and we preview Julia, Fool Me Once and Mr Bates versus the Post Office in our TV reviews. You can text us on 51551, tweet at RT Arena and you can live stream on rt.ie forward slash radio forward slash radio watch live. The theme of the Gilded Cage is one that continues to intrigue the filmmaker, Sophia Coppola. Whether that cage is an elegant hotel in Tokyo, the Palace at Versailles, or indeed Graceland. Sophia Coppola based her latest film, Priscilla, on Priscilla Presley's 1985 memoir, Elvis and Me. In it, she tells the story of the girl who was courted by Elvis Presley when she was just 14 and ultimately went to live with him in Memphis, Tennessee, and later becomes his wife. And even though Elvis was one of the biggest pop stars in the world at the time, the film is focused squarely on Priscilla and her strange and isolated life with Elvis. Sean Rock spoke to Sofia Coppola recently, but before we hear the interview, let's listen to a scene from the film. Here, Kayleigh Spani plays 14-year-old Priscilla, who is living on a US Army base in Germany with her family. She is approached by a soldier in a diner, played by Eric Cohen.
1: You... Hi. I'm Terry West, what's your name? I see you coming here a lot. Is your family stationed here? Yes. Where are you from? Texas. My dad just transferred here in August. That's so. How do you like Germany? Uh, i booked the entertainment here. My wife plays here sometimes.
2: Neat. Do you like Elvis
1: Presley? Of course. Who doesn't? Uh, I'm a friend of his. My wife and I go to his house sometimes when he has people over. He's always glad to see folks from back home. Uh, We're going this weekend if you want to join. have to ask my parents.
2: All right. See you around.
3: The story itself, the story of Priscilla. When did you first come across it? I'm guessing it was the book, Elvis and Me. When did you start reading that? And what struck you about it, Sophia, that you said, that's a film I want to make?
4: Um, yeah, I had the book around. It's just kind of, um, you know, an old paperback that seemed like a fun vacation read. And I kind of looked at it, you know, over the years, but never really paid that much attention. And then a couple of years ago, I was reading it and I was like, so struck by like oh my god i didn't know she was in high school i didn't know when she lived at graceland and just all these interesting details and i was really surprised with how revealing it was and how um and how also how relatable it was of just kind of the experiences that all girls go through of your first kiss or all these experiences but but in um such a really wild setting you know unusual sort of setting
3: yeah, not many people, let's face it, go through their first kiss experience with somebody like Elvis Presley.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it it was like kind of looking at all these markers that we go through to grow up, but in such an unusual way.
3: So the reading of the book was one thing, I guess Um, starting a conversation or a set of conversations with Priscilla was was a whole other ball game and must have opened up the script or the potential for a script to you in a different way.
4: Yeah, I mean, I started, um thinking about it I just thought it would be a a movie I'd be excited to make um to tell the story that um is so unknown and she's such a famous um figure in American you know pop history and that I was surprised at how little we know about her but I um I I asked to I reached out to her to see if she would be even open to the idea of a film being made of her book because she wasn't looking to make it into a film there had been a TV movie um and and I guess in the 80s or 90s but um but um but yeah so she she said she would yeah I was nervous to to call her and ask her but she was very very kind and said that she liked my films and that she would cons- you know think about it and then um then I heard that she you know agreed agreed to do it and um so then I started working um just going through the her book and then saving all these questions for her and then i sat down with her and spent a lot of time talking with her and asking her questions
3: um the first thing that struck me it, in the opening sections of the movie we're dealing with a 14 year old girl and a 24 year old man from the outset this is very difficult territory to to navigate now it's been told from the point of view of the 14 year old girl clearly but you you must have had some worries around that particular aspect. It's an important aspect of the relationship, isn't it?
4: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And she was like, you know, she's everyone's known about that for a long time, and she was, you know, referred to as like a child bride and stuff. But um, so so I I knew that about her, but it was really interesting to hear from her perspective, you know, how how she felt about it, and how she experienced it, and what really you know went on between them. And I just. Tried to show her experience without, um, you know, imposing my judgment on it, and try to, you know, discover what, how, what it was like for her.
3: Yeah, that is the difficult thing—not to impose judgment. And I'm wondering, was was it things that were, was it things that she said to you that helped you not impose judgment in that way, or how did you go about that?
4: Um, yeah, I've been definitely talking to her and then just uh, her story's written in a very vivid way and just kind of staying with what, you know, what she felt and I know what it's like to have a crush on, you know, a rock star as a teenager, we all probably all girls have. So, you know, who, who wouldn't um, be seduced by that. And um, so I had to really kind of suspend my adult parent brain and just um, focus on her reliving those moments.
2: What are the kids back home listening to these days?
0: Mm -hmm. Bobby Darren, And Fabian. (laughs)
1: Anywho,
2: That's good. I I thought they might have forgotten about me. No. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? You got a a favorite song? What
3: are you going to make me give?
1: Heartbreak Hotel. (laughs)
3: <laughs> kiss the lion,
2: huh wow uh,
3: the other side I suppose did, did you have to put your adult brain to the one side adult parent brain to the one side because even when we look at what her, her parents did first of all allowing her to go to the party that's one thing but allowing her then to move to Graceland at the age of seventeen to complete her her education, I know seventeen is you know it's uh, heading towards adulthood, but it's it was a big move to let her move to a, a, a to Graceland and live in Elvis Presley's house.
4: Yeah, it's pretty shocking, especially they were they were protective parents, um, and it just speaks to you know the influence of um, you know celebrity at that time, and and also she had a lot of drive of, of you know of really putting stress on the family and having that but as to to get there and saying she would she would find her own way there if they didn't let her so i think i think the parents were you know scared of um that she she would never forgive them but it's, yeah it's hard to believe it's hard to believe
3: it, it, yeah because if it wasn't true you'd say that that <laughs> you've gone too far in the making up of that in in some ways the other side of this of course is that and you manage this, it, and, and I know you're telling the story as told to you by Priscilla through the book and through your conversations, I'm guessing as well, you know, that they slept in the same bed from she got to Graceland, but that sex was not, uh, certainly from Elvis's side, was refused uh, until they were married. Um, that side of it, uh, did you find that absolutely and, and totally credible, uh, first of all? And you were treating... You were also talking about an icon here in in Elvis Presley. Yeah, that must have been another difficult line to tread.
4: Yeah, I just tried to focus on her story, and I felt like her story deserved to be told, and um, and that was what I was focused on. You know, we've heard a lot about him, and I, I mean know a little about her, so I I tried to just make that the focus and the priority to tell what was her side of this whole experience, and he, she really insists that he. Um, yeah they didn't sleep together until their wedding night, so I'm just going by what I know from her
3: mm, yeah well you have to yeah, I suppose you have to take what she says so you, yeah, you, otherwise there's she
4: no on it. i be, I believe her I mean i I think they did other things that, that you know I don't know
3: how appropriate
4: it was, but um, yeah, but on that part, she insists on that, but.
3: Yeah, there are other aspects. I mean, there's a scene in the movie which I find deeply disturbing, a kind of a doll's house type scene in some yeah. ways, where she's paraded out in, uh, Priscilla is paraded out in a number of outfits and Elvis and his coterie yeah. are commenting on them. I mean, it 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 yeah. really is upsetting to watch that type of thing.
4: Well, you're a sen- sensitive man. I, no, I, I think it is. I think it's really intimidating and... And she's trying so hard, you know, so common at that time to, you know, please her man and and be, you know, what his idea of, um, you know, an ideal woman is. And yeah, but yeah, it is, I think it was, yeah, uncomfortable for her to to, but to shoot that just to have, it's intimidating to have this, yeah, oh, these guys.
3: Uh, even, even in like, the shooting, even in the shooting office, there was a kind of intimidation, uh, was there?
4: No, but she, no, I mean, but she could feel that, like she could. Do the scene because she she said, oh it is intimidating to have these guys all sitting there staring at her yeah
2: black hair more makeup make your stand out more. Four o'clock boys we gotta go barbecue's waiting. Come on boys. The
3: the other aspect that struck me um, and and I wondered if you had drawn parallels between Priscilla's story and obviously Marie Antoinette's story whose uh, life you also told in in a biopic. Two young women, one could argue, possibly naive, but that's another that's another day's work, possibly. But they were certainly brought into very powerful situations or situations where there was a power imbalance. Did you see those parallels? Did, did that affect the way you approached this film?
4: Yeah, no, I definitely saw similarities and I, I thought, oh, is it too similar? But I think... I th- yeah, but there's definitely similarities, but then it was, there were all, also a lot of differences that were, um, you know, like stimulating to me to make. And I think Marie Antoinette had no say in ending up in Versailles, where where Priscilla really uh, made it happen and she was really behind, she really had the drive to get there. And, um, but there's definitely similarities of a, a young person navigating a world and, and finding their identity through this, so, so through a, a a hard situation.
3: I know you've you've said to me a couple of times that you really wanted to focus on her story. Difficult, I mean, a wonderful job done by Kayleigh Spaney, obviously, uh, in in the part of Priscilla, but you also have Jacob Elordi in the part of Elvis Presley. And there's so much magnetism in that character. And Jacob Elordi has his own magnetism too. Striking that balance and making sure that that didn't pull focus, was that a difficult uh, process?
4: Yeah, no, that's a good point. It was really important that he is this big figure, but he can't take over the story because it's her story. But we had to also show his charisma. So that was definitely um, a balance that we had to find, I think, in the editing and, and while we were filming it.
3: And uh, how did you go about that in terms of just, you know, the, the, the dynamics of a scene, making sure that the big character doesn't take it over. How How did you approach that as a director?
4: yeah we just had to always be aware of where she was and her point of view and always coming back to her and you know where you focus the close-ups and you know so it's tricky though because we we wanted to make him this big charismatic character but then not take over and i think just always with the camera bringing it back to to her and her point of view and being clear
2: that's for me This ma'am
1: What do you think? You like it? I love it. I, I can't believe you did that. All right, it's time to go. So there's graduating. Can I ask you something? Um, I was wondering if maybe you could wait outside the ceremony.
2: So I'm afraid you being there might take away the attention from the graduates. Well, yeah. Uh, I guess I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it like <laughs> that. I won't come here no. I'll, I'll wait for you outside in the car. No way, it'll kind of be like I'm there.
0: Thank
2: you. All right, let's go, baby.
3: <laughs> How much does the period um, play into this? The period of time that we're talking about uh, in in the case of the the, the Presley Priscilla story. How did that play into what you presented?
4: yeah i think that was a big aspect of it and that was a big part that excited me about building this world and 60s memphis and and just the all the pageantry of that time and um and i think it informs a lot of the the story that story wouldn't happen today like that and just the way that you know the roles of women and the expectations were so different then. and i wanted to feel authentic to the time and look like look like that era
3: having given us the Marie Antoinette, having given us the Priscilla, those are, are two women in, in very specific situations. Is there something about that period in a young woman's life that particularly interests you? I think it's there across many of your films.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's such, a, I'm always interested in stories about identity and that's such a formative time. And I'm always curious about how people become who they end up being. So it's a, um, it's just a heightened time of, of, you know, kind of discovery and struggling. and um, and yeah, it's interesting to see how people end up the way they are.
3: And to what extent do you draw on personal experience in, in the telling of those types of stories?
4: Yeah, I mean, I always try to relate to the character and imagine what it was like for them and connect it to experiences in my life to make it um, feel real. So I always, always, yeah, try to connect with it on a personal level.
3: And and on that level, what what specifically would you say within your own life related to the Priscilla stories? What were what were the aspects that you could that you found so relatable?
4: Just being that age and how you feel, you think you're older at that age, and you know what it's like to to be with a you know first boyfriend and and kind of discovering yourself with someone else and becoming a mother. You know all these aspects of her. You know just transition
3: into womanhood. Thank you so much for being with us this evening, Sophia. Lovely to speak with you.
4: Thank you. Nice talking to you. Good night.
0: That was Sophia Coppola, the writer and director of Priscilla, speaking with Sean recently. Priscilla is showing in Irish cinemas nationwide and we'll be reviewing the film on tomorrow's film reviews. Welcome back to Arena with Kay Sheehy here for Sean Rocks this evening. And a reminder that you can watch the show on our live stream at rt.ie forward slash radio forward slash watch live. The new year brings a spate of TV series across the streaming giants and the TV networks and the first week in 2024 has been a busy one. Harlan Coben, one of the world's most influential crime novelists, continues his contract with Netflix and his latest adaptation is of his novel Fool Me Once, in which a young widow is disturbed by an image of her late husband captured on her toddler's nanny cam. Sarah Lancashire returns as famous TV chef Julia Child in a series inspired by An Extraordinary Life and her show The French Chef, which essentially invented food television. And Toby Jones stars as Mr Bates in Mr Bates Versus The Post Office. It looks as one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in recent British legal history, where hundreds of innocent sub-postmasters were wrongly accused of theft, fraud and false accounting due to a defect. Of IT system, I'm joined now by Chris Wasser and Jen Gannon, who have been watching all three series. Uh, let's start with "Fool Me Once" on Netflix. Chris, as I said, this is a continuation of Har- Harlan Coben's um, relationship with Netflix. How did it come about? They've already done "Stay Close," "The Stranger," and other shows.
1: Yeah, I think there have been seven uh, Harlan Coben Netflix series, and they're not. The, it's you know Netflix isn't the only streamer that has a deal with Harlan Coben, but I say they probably have the most lucrative deal with Harlan Coben in that they plan to do somewhere in the region of 14 adaptations up until around 2026. So I think this is actually the second English language adaptation. Uh, another to feature Joanna Lamley, another to feature Richard Armitage. Um, and it's just, you know, it's another big mystery. There's a whole universe of these kinds of stories where Harlan Coben has come out and said, like, it's going to be full of twists and turns. That my, my job is to kind of play with your expectations. My job is to kind of like throw as many red herrings at you as possible. But also with Netflix, they're taking stories that are set in America in the novels and bringing them to the UK. And he has said recently in interviews that, you know, it's because he wants to toy with British class systems and it's because he wants to keep using the same British actors over and over. So yeah, it's it's basically, it's taking a novel that was originally set I think in in, in the US East Coast and kind of throwing it into uh, uh, British uh, the British countryside
0: So uh, Jen in this Fool Me Once uh, Michelle Keegan plays Maya Stern she's an army veteran who flies a helicopter Mm. now she's mourning both the death of her husband and And her her sister sister. so just bring us into the tragedy that that she's facing Just to say
5: this is like kind of familiar ground for Michelle Keegan she went from being you know a star of Coronation Street, Tina, uh, uh, on to starring in Our Girl, which was another kind of military esque role. And she is basically in this as Maya trying to hold her life together. As you said, there's the death of her sister Claire and then the recent murder of her husband Joe, who's played by Richard Armitage. And she is juggling the sole custody of her daughter with her job training helicopter pilots. And in the midst of all this grief, she sees her dead husband on her nanny cam and. Confronts the nanny about it, and for her troubles, gets pepper sprayed in the eyes, <laughs> and thus sets off this wild chain of events um, that leads to dealings with Joe's family, who are quite shady. They own a successful pharmaceutical company, and they want to keep it that way, basically. And this is headed up by Joe's mother, Judith, and she's played by Joanna Lumley. Uh, she's the family matriarch, and she never quite bought the romance between her son Joe and Maya. And then there's Jo's because mother, even sister. though
0: Maya is very successful, we can see. That there's a class. There difference. is a class
5: conflict there. Yes, um, I mean, which w- refers
0: to what Chris was saying about Harlan Coben liking this idea. Wanted of-
5: to transplant it into yeah that very you know the British class system and the way that it works and how I mean to, to somebody like. Michelle Keegan you know the, the kind of roles that she's used to playing like in Brassic like in Corrie they're kind of grittier the grittier side of things and the more earthy side of things so she's up against this family who want their secrets to remain hidden and what you're getting is as Chris was saying it's a very layered complex usual Harlan Coben twists and turns that arrive all over the place in the eight episodes
0: Well getting back to the nanny cam that you mentioned earlier here Maya played by Michelle Keegan confronts her nanny Isabel played by Natalie Kastrzewa. She sees her dead husband, Joe, on the nanny cam. There's lots of strong language here because Maya's very emotional.
4: Mrs Birkett, can I speak with you?
6: Now? Yes, now. I need to show you something.
0: What is this? It's a camera. You record me? Or just watch your screen.
6: You're spying like, on watch, me. watch. How do you explain this? I don't know what you mean. That man there,
7: you saw him, you saw who that was. Who?
1: What do you mean, who? It's Joe. How the hell can that be? Please, Mrs. Burkett, you're scaring me. It's fucking
0: Joe. He's dead, Isabella. You hurt him. He's dead, and he's there on the camera whilst you were in the house. Mama! It's all right, darling. Just, Just go back in and watch your show. Go on, it's all right. It's okay. I want answers.
7: I need some water.
0: If they were the only answers, she'd be looking for <laughs> during the series. Chris, we said that. Or I think you said that Harlan Coben once, you know, loves the twists and turns. There's no chance to go for a couple during this series, no. no or you'll I mean, miss some major plot twist.
1: You will. I felt at times that I needed a wall chart. You know that yeah. at home beside me, just to keep up with everything. Because although it feels as though we've talked about the main story, we've really only talked about maybe a third of it. I mean, there's a whole other story there involving a, a frazzled uh, detective named uh, DS Sammy Kerrs, played by the great Adil Akhtar, and he is trying to solve the Joe and Claire murder case. Um, but he's got his own personal problems. Yes, to, it's always
0: know. nice to give the detective a backstory, but this is a huge it's backstory. a huge
1: backstory to the point where I thought Adele actor who again like Michelle Keegan is a great actor it's like just give him his own series mm. just do your own thing with him a mini series, maybe um, but he keeps passing out on the job um, he clearly has a health issue which he won't go to the doctor about he won't tell his pregnant fiance about it he's also a recovering alcoholic he has been paired with this uh, millennial wrecked ahead at work who basically every time they're trying to solve a crime this other guy just keeps cracking jokes that don't make any sense so he has his own story that there. And every now and then he crosses paths with Michelle Keegan, he crosses paths with Joanna Lumley, but it just feels like two different shows kind of wrestling for your attention. And I think as well with the with the with the red herrings that you mentioned there, and with the constant twists and turns, that's to be expected with Harlan Coben. But watching this, I just kept thinking, it's just it's one thing to st- for for an author or for a filmmaker like to stay two steps ahead of the audience. It's another to alienate us from the story if there are too many twists. You just kind of get to the point where you're like, well, what if I don't know anything that's going on, that's no fun at all. You can see why Netflix
0: would choose Harlan Coben because he has all these twists and turns. Mm. But to
5: make television that's satisfying, there's no sense of psychological depth there in isn't. this. There's no characterization really at all. It has, I've spoken about this kind of these kind of identikit thrillers before, and I feel like they have it's the same production design, the same plotting almost and they have this terrible kind of numbing effect almost. Like it's very lifeless. It's not, it's it's quite forgettable. There's no life in the script. There's just one preposterous event happening after another and, you know, there's no, hardly any characterization at all. You have Maya, like Michelle Keegan, she is quote unquote feisty. That's it. Joanna Lumley, you know, she's, the character Judith is brittle or flinty that's it and they don't flesh out any of these characters remotely there's no real three dimensional you know aspect to them over these eight episodes and it feels like it's mired in, in cliche and But I think Chris you still thought that within that if they had just developed some of
0: the plot lines a little more and got rid of uh, such a, 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 an effusion of plot lines it would probably have been much better
1: I think if you trimmed it down I mean I'm not above trashy television I mean a show like like this does have its place in the world and it certainly God has forbid. its place. It certainly has its place on Netflix. But it needs to be snappy, it needs to be shorter. The baggy running length is a problem here. Five out of the eight episodes clock in around the hour mark, and that, that's not gonna cut it when you have when you have this many carriages and when you have a very when you have so many mysteries uh, uh you know running circles around themselves, it's just it's too much. Um I think if you if you had Michelle Keegan's mystery, that could make for a good miniseries. If you could have Adele, that could make for a good. But together it's just it's too much.
5: And like it's surprising to me that it's like Brastic Rider Annie Brocklehurst that's responsible for this be- because he's worked with Michelle Keegan and he has this great sense of humour and there's absolutely no semblance of humour in this there's no semblance of anything it feels very bloodless very bland it's set in these anonymous McMansions that all look the same and then they're all driving the kind of same car it just didn't feel like it was in any kind of real world even and I think like we were saying Michelle Keegan is a solid actress I mean ideal actor he always manages to give shows this heart and depth and just see him reduced to this bumbling detective cliche you know chasing after the burke family was really disappointing yeah, there was
0: potential there i thought yeah. he was going He's to be the comedy turn mm-hmm. but it doesn't turn out like that
1: no but it doesn't turn out like that at all
0: yeah. Okay. Uh,
5: As stars out of five. What did you give it, Jen? Oh, two. Sorry, and that's two for you know one for Michelle Keegan and one for Adele actor. And you, Chris? I'd
1: probably go the same. Yeah, I think there's a reason Michelle Keegan again was picked for this role, and she's you know she knows what's what's required over here, but she's too good for it, and Adele's too good, or Adele actor is too good for it too. So two stars.
0: So that's Fool Me Once on Netflix. We've seen the life of Julia Child, the famed US TV cook who aimed to teach the Americans how to cook French um, in Julie and Julia where Merle Streep played her. Mm. In this then, I, I suppose that she half the screen, I think, in that with Amy Adams screen time. Yeah. So I guess you could see the potential they saw in this first TV chef to make a series out of this. I mean,
5: for Julie and Julia, which was Nora Ephron's final film, there was a lot of talk of less Amy Adams, Julie, and more, Meryl Streep's Julia because she just exploded off the screen. And yes, that's Amy Adams
0: was a blogger who wanted to re- recreate her, yeah. her 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 uh, beautiful recipes.
5: And so, like, I mean, it is a, you know, Meryl Streep's performance was a glorious depiction of Julia Child. And I did think when the the series Julia started um, with Sarah Lancashire, I was like, did we really need this? Is this something that we needed? And it turns out, I mean, I'm so happy to say I was wrong because we do need it. Um, and I think season one for people that maybe haven't discovered it as of yet, you can go back and watch it on on Now uh, or Sky and if you're missing that Mrs Maisel injection of period drama in your life, this is that kind of chocolate box television that kind of, you know, sweeps you away with like this out of that, you know, the drabness of January it's something that we kind of need at this moment in time and I think, you know it's no surprise to learn that one of the creators of Mrs Maisel uh, Daniel Goldfarb is responsible for this. Show and the showrunner Christopher Keyser, he cut his key, he cut his teeth on the show uh, Party of Five as well, so it's that kind of nuts and bolts but beautifully done American drama and I mean at the last season it was a scene setter they're reintroducing it to Julia Child, the story of this strident, slightly odd woman who became America's go-to guide on how to cook and bringing the sophistication of French cuisine and French culture to the US and it was set after the 1961 publication of her bestseller Mar- Mastering the Art of French Cooking and it took on this dual narrative so it's the image of the domestic woman on screen and in print and her place in this rapidly changing society of the 1960s so there was these debates about the serious fiction of the time when she was publishing the books you know the John Updikes the Nabokovs and versus the frivolousness, so-called frivolousness of child's world and all taking place in the offices of the esteemed publishing house knopf under the watchful eye of Judith Light's Blanche Knopf and there was this struggle as well of translating Julia to the screen and into the homes of the American housewife. Um, yes, because she's a larger than life character in every way and she's got this very
0: unusual high-pitched voice yes. which is, you know, a challenge and, to love. And Sarah
5: Lancashire you know, captures that so well and the physicality of that, that awkwardness of being a woman of this stature um, and taking up space on TV and not being the glossy so-called, you know, almost Stepford wife image of a housewife. But, you know, also she is working with this very plucky female producer, Alice, who's fighting for her place among her male co-workers as well. So you've got all this boiling narrative all together in season one and then season two kind of moves on. Yes, that.
0: Chris, it, it, they make a strange decision, I thought, in season two to open it with uh, uh, Julia Childs away in France. with her, I suppose, um, her her co-writer of cookery books, Isabella Rossellini Simca. But they... Did they tussle a lot. So the action in the TV station is going on separately to what's happening in France.
1: Yeah. And it's 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 ironic uh, that, you know, it's Julia Child's name above the door. But in the second season, it kind of feels as though they're pushing her out a little bit. And that could become a little bit of a problem. Um, but yes, we do see uh, Julia, certainly in the first installment in France, in the French countryside, working alongside Simca, played by a delightful Isabella Rossellini. And they are trying to come up with new recipes for her cookbook. And then back in Boston, Massachusetts, you have the. Uh, team at WGBH uh, television, the the, the public uh, television station, trying to figure out, they're, they're a station that's never had a hit before, and now they're being told by the bosses, well, we like quite like having a hit, so get Julia back, but also find the next Julia, so that's a big task for them, and you also have the director of The French Chef following a successful uh, first season, wanting to make his next program a serious documentary, you know, and he's running around Harvard, mixing with the uh, 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 anti-war types and trying to fine subjects for, for, for this film that he's making and that's all lovely and that's all very good and also it did and it makes the show feel and this sounds like a bit of a weird description like madmen Without the anxiety, without the tension, or you know, yeah. where the characters not the not the depth of Mad, ma- no. depth of Mad yeah. Men. No, no, at all. but they're if trying we,
0: to show that social, uh, uh, political milieu, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But this, unlike Mad Men, this is a show where the characters genuinely love each other. Um, but no, it's, <laughs> it 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 does tackle some very serious issues. But then it will bring us back to France, where Julia Child is basically, you know, tricking waiters into giving away another chef's a uh, uh, recipe. Yes, let's
0: play a, pl- a scene from the, that trip to France. Julia, played by. Sarah Lancashire and Simka, played by Isabella Rossellini, go to lunch at a new restaurant in France and Julia is blown away by the loup en croûte, which is sea bass in puff pastry. I'm sure you all know. Simka is not so impressed.
1: Julia, what is it? Julia, what?
5: No. Oh. I don't have
0: the
1: word. Really? For me, no cream, no butter, no flavor.
5: Oh, it's delicious. Light as a balloon, and entirely new <laughs> I feel like I'm a virgin all over again. Well, I was until a moment ago.
6: I've never
4: tasted anything like it.
6: This is smoke and mirror disguised as flavor. Well, I love it. Oh, I love. If this is the future, Julia, count me out.
0: Sarah Lancashire there as Julia and Simka is played by Isabella Rossellini that's a, a great double act Jen you know for those who love Sarah Lancashire mm. as you know the gritty uh, person from Happy Valley is this it is a cha- this is a challenge of a different kind of role but do do you miss that wonderful depth of grittiness she it's has It's another
5: string to her bow I think and it's an introduction to her style and her versatility to an American audience um, uh, who wouldn't be used to her at all. Maybe they're they're only catching up on Happy Valley. They don't really know of her. And I think it's a brilliant introduction because I think the thing about Julia Child is, you know, her life happened behind closed doors. There's not much really known about her private life. Um, but I do think with Sarah Lancashire's depiction she gives her this warmth and this very relatable humanity there's a lot with her husband Paul where she is saying that she wants to be relevant she wants uh, women of her a certain age were never, weren't seen and she is saying as an older childless woman to have her place um, in the world and I love that idea and I love that uh, that idea is front and centre of this show and she imbues her with this sense of vulnerability that opens up as the series continues and I think she really is adeptly aided by David Hyde Pierce, uh, he has this very subtle astute performance as her husband Paul who had to take the back seat and there's a lot to chew over there in the dynamics between the two of them about you know he lives his life in the background as Mr Julia Child and the complexities within their marriage because of that and I think that's where it is at its most interesting okay. stars out of five from you Chris
1: yeah, I think it's actually quite charming. I quite like when David Hyde Pierce and, and and Sarah Lancashire do get to share the scenes together because whenever he's left alone, especially in the scenes where he's with Simca's hus- husband, he's off on this last of the summer wine type <laughs> yeah. type quest. It's very very peculiar, so they are great together. I just hope That when we get back to when the story comes back to America, we get more Julia Child Mm. because it is the Sarah Lancashire show. So I'd say three stars. Three stars. And from you?
5: Yeah, I'd say three and a half. Um, You know, Julia uh, Child, it is her show, as you say, and she is the secret weapon. She is the ingredient that makes it all taste all the better. So I think whenever she's on screen, that's what you want to see. So, yeah, more Julia. Thank you. (laughs) So and that's... um, the Julia is
0: on in Sky Atlantic. And finally, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office starring Toby Jones and Alan Bates. Uh, Chris, bring us into this story. I mean, it's a story I've heard some radio reports on, but really went under the radar for so many decades.
1: For a long time, yeah. So from 1999 onwards, you had sub-postmasters across the UK uh, calling up this Horizon helpline to report a an error in their accounts. So submasters were basically handed this new account created by Fujitsu Figi- Fujitsu that was Fujitsu sorry that was supposed to make their daily you know businesses a whole lot better. It was supposed to make their days a lot easier and instead it kind of turned their lives into a living hell because the horizon program that they were using it was defective and it was full of glitches and it was occasionally difficult to understand and whenever some postmasters at the end of the day, if there was a loss in their accounts, if they rang this helpline. They weren't told that, you know, okay, someone will be out to help you. They were told, well, it's up to you to recuperate those losses. You have to pay out of your own pocket. And if you don't do that by tomorrow, your business will be shut. And if you don't pay up, you'll be fined. And this went on for years where you had a lot of postmasters paying out of their own pockets to, you know, recover losses which weren't theirs. They had nobody to listen to. They were always told that they were by themselves, that this wasn't happening to anyone else. And a lot of sub-postmasters across the country, hundreds, were charged with fraud, false accounting, theft. Some went to prison. Some had their lives completely destroyed. And eventually a group of sub-postmasters led by one person from North Wales, Alan Bates, they met and they convened and they, they, they formed an alliance and they decided, right, we're going to to take on. It's a very David versus Goliath case, but we're going to take on the post office here and we're going to make a stand together. They can't ignore us all together, basically. And that's where this drama picks up. Yes,
0: uh, Jim, because you can see in the story of Joe Hamilton, played by Monica Dolan, mm. she's um, a postmistress. She is she also likes to bake and then suddenly she's there one evening and she has a, her computer screen
5: and she sees she just can't get the, uh, the uh, to balance uh, to balance yeah and and then the worst thing is as chris was saying she rings you know the it department of you know this new wonder technology to sort it out for her and they basically say to her just you know fudge the accounts and it'll the system will sort itself out and she trusts in them to do that and then ends up with these amount deaths. And I think the greatest thing about, you know, this drama series is the fact that it it brings it back to the human aspect of the story, the humanity. Because I think when you're reading about the story, you can almost get lost in the facts and the figures and, you know, the the courts and the trials. But when you are looking at somebody like those actors that have this devastating, every man kind of ordinary presence, humane presence of somebody like Monica Dolan, somebody like Toby Jones, it really drives that point home that, you know, this could be your uncle, this could be your mother, your neighbor, Neighbor that is caught up in something utterly beyond their control, and it is completely horribly Kafkaesque. And when you see those, you know, ordinary workers struggling with this issue and not having any help, and and you know these. They're the the, the company, the, the post office that they work for, like just shutting down completely. And it's repeatedly referred to, the, you know, this hallowed institution in the show as the nation's most trusted brand. And they're giving them this defective technology that they know that is is not working, and then covering it up completely. Um, and it just feels so insidious and ter- utterly terrifying. It, there is a slow creeping dread to watching uh, this show, and it's not an easy watch. It's very difficult to sit through those horrible of these people like as we said with that unthinkable pressure on them having mental breakdowns and you know others dying by suicide and it's not an easy watch but I think it's a necessary watch and there's something remarkably potent about these performances and seeing these events unfold on screen in that way Yes the people in it the individual postmasters are
0: so isolated and they are so because they're being blamed and they it's Kafkaesque as, as um, Jen says they can't get through to anybody and they're being told to follow things and then the, their whole situation gets worse they're mounting more and more debt it really is a uh terrifying
1: it is and it'll boil your blood did uh, this idea that every time someone rang like one of the sub postmasters, played by will Miller his name is Lee Castleton he says at one stage I when he rings the horizon helpline that I've called you people 91 times and they really were making hundreds of calls yeah. to, and they were constantly ignored um, and it, and it really the the second episode where you have an independent investigator hired to go around and to talk to the people um, and to kind of like ask them you know to, to go through the each case in to treat the people like humans. You you have the sub-postmasters asking questions. At one stage, Joe Hamilton, played by Monica Dolan, she says, can I ask a stupid question? And the independent investigator tells her there are no stupid questions. She says, where was, is this money that I was supposed to have lost? And that's a question that the viewer is going to be saying. Yeah. Like, yes, where? that's
0: exactly what you say. Did the money exist?
1: Yeah. yeah. Who was, was doing
0: a, the overall accounting? Yeah.
1: Because there's no evidence of them having had that money. And also the police couldn't get involved because the post office does its own criminal investigations. It is just, it's angry, it's vital it's brilliantly performed I think it's secret weapons are Bonica Dolan and, and and Toby Jones because they are perfectly cast as these determined small town heroes and I was
5: surprised about how good Will Meller is Will Meller yeah. actually is great in this role and it does make you think well I want to see more of him on TV um, and I do think it's very sobering it's really distressing and even in its optimistic moments there is that uneasy feeling that these corporations that you know you work for never have our best interests at heart and you could slip from you know being a cog in a machine to something that is blamed for this machine grinding to a halt and that's what the most terrifying thing I think about it is and it doesn't have that massive you know, pay off of pathos like other working class dramas like The Full Monty or something like that but it does have this you know, feeling this, as you said this visceral feeling of injustice that just bursts off the screen So stars out of five from you Chris for Mr Bates
0: and yeah. the post office
1: I thought it was terrific and as Jen was saying I just, I think it's essential uh, viewing uh, yeah, it was an important show and I'm glad that it got made because we, we, we are not there, there is no shortage of infuriating incredible true stories that have eventually received the screen treatment but this is one that deserves to be seen so four stars
5: Yep, same, absolutely blistering. Don't miss it. Well, that's Mr. Bates
0: and the Post Office on Virgin and also on ITV. Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser, thank you very much. You're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena. Anyone familiar with Cork City will know that its center is in fact an island, surrounded on all sides by the River Lee. Island City is a new urban sculpture trail in Cork featuring the work of five artists, inspired by the history and inherent changeability of the place. Three of those artists, Neve McCann, Fiona Mulholland, and Brian Kenny, join me now in studio. And as usual, we have posted some of the images of their work on X at ORTE arena. So, Niamh, if I could begin with you, this project is the single biggest investment in public art in the city, in which is a fantastic project.
7: Yeah, it's a very interesting
0: endeavour by Cork uh, City
7: Council, National Sculpture Factory and Fulch Ireland, who have brought a lot of the money, or brought the, the money to the project. Um, and it's a lovely interrelationship of five sculptures across the city where um, each piece is not taking up a lot of real estate, but it's about relationships to each other and to the place and to
0: history and the contemporary history and that being the foundation of it. And did you have a choice on where you would cite your piece or did your piece come out of the site? The piece came out
7: of the site. The site was proposed to me, Carey's Lane, which is off uh, Patrick Street and Paul Street on the other side of the city centre. So it's a narrow lane that has history that's connected to the Huguenots. Um, uh, residents that were there some time back as well as a very busy cafe, restaurant, bar thoroughfare from the main area to the galleries areas at the back so that was proposed to me and to try and feel my way into a, the, the place. Okay so how did you go about it? I was not in Ireland at the time but I did spend a number of years in Cork as a student so I I really had a grow on a feel for the place and I think a real feel for the um, busy and mischievous nature of Cork and kind of that really is what stuck with me when I was coming. coming. Coming up with an idea connected to an image and connected to the historic and contemporary nature of us and trying to intermingle all
0: those things. Um, your piece is called Sentinels and in brackets flew through the ages in the shape of birds. So we have a structure with birds perching on top.
7: That's right. So on either end of the lane, uh, Patrick Street and Paul Street, there is a seagull holding a golden august perched atop a, a wooden branch really um, with neon underneath that and that snakes from one end of the lane to the other end of the lane almost like a drawing and following the topography of the the cafes and the shops and the restaurants in a very very um, mutable and sensitive way so it moves left and right or up and down and
0: has a very um, uh, changeable nature to its Uh, its physicality. So you mentioned the history there and you mentioned the Huguenots. Mm -hmm. What's the relationship between the Huguenots and that part of the city?
7: With the initial thoughts and again images with the pieces, uh, with the piece of thinking of the island city that there's a migrant and an adaptable and a cheeky and changeable nature to the population and to kind of pay respect to people like the Huguenots who brought craft and um, uh, expanded the place in very interesting ways and to honour that, really, and to honour that within a deeper historic context like American calling the birds in from the sea and that idea of the south of Ireland being foundationally based on, upon migratory diverse animal and human landscapes
0: and so as people walk through that lane you're asking them to look up or will they will, will their uh, attention be brought up to the above them
7: I think your attention is brought up to the sculpture. There's a light on either end as the neon attracts you in, as does the, the seagull with the golden nugget in its mouth. And it's, um, as are a lot of the pieces, they are very sensitive to where they stand. So it said that they, they don't necessarily take up a lot of real estate, but once you notice them, you can't help but... See them from then on. So it draws the eye through one end of the lane to the other and fits into that that particular street, um, and then acts like that. That once you see it, the red rope that holds it in place and this. Oh yes, and the
0: red rope represents the rebel counties. Yes,
7: pretty much. I wanted to make sure that red, the red rope that literally in tension holds this branch in place. So the 120 meters of branch in place. is, you know, a direct reference to Cork city itself or the rebel county.
0: Now, Fiona, you got inspiration from
6: ca- the county of Cork. I did. Um, I, well, the story begins in the early Bronze Age, um, approximately 3,800 years ago. And I came across a piece, you know, um, that uh, in my in the early research stage about a, an archeolog- archaeological dig that had happened twenty years ago in two thousand and four um, whilst they were building the mitchellstown bypass um, and it was beside the graveau gri- river there, so this story intrigued me and it 's absolutely unique to cork. the find itself um, is you know, hasn't been found or anything like yes, it anywhere Yes, the artefacts are amazing, mm. like they're fun artefacts. Yes, um, they're not sure really, um, I suppose, what the purpose of these, you know, were. Was it a child? Was it perhaps, were they votive offerings? Were they for libation? But there was basically um, two vessels or three vessels found with a spoon very closely knit together on a, a stone slab Um, And what's extraordinary, uh, Vessel 1 was quite fragmented, but Vessel 2 has ears and nose and eyes and is is what they they now term the Mitchellstown face cup. And I just thought it was such a charming story. Um, And And what
0: did you do with this image then, this shape and... Where was your site in Cork City? Uh,
6: my site was the Exchange Building, and it is on the corner. It's a pedestrian area, uh, Oliver Plunkett Street and Prince's Street. Um, and it's the formerly, it, in the 18th century, it was a playhouse. So I found that intriguing again, playing with the notion of gargoyles and masks and theatre um, And also that area on the building, um, it it used to be known as the Ivory Tower restaurant uh, by the maverick chef, Seamus uh, O'Connell. And that area now is very vibrant in terms of outdoor cafes and restaurants. So I was trying to link all these um, different things together um, to create a piece that you know, would speak of our past um, and that notion of sharing and ritual. Now, these little
0: artefacts are are tiny, but you have made them Um, huge to put them as sculptural pieces in this um, site.
6: Yeah, I I basically made them uh, as 3D sculptural reliefs, so they're slightly exaggerated for a sculptural relief because they come so far out of the building. But I, I really wanted... I was thinking of also of an Irish dresser, the three tiers of the exchange building. Uh, and that's the key word here as well, is that exchange between the past and the present. Um, so... And yeah. Brian, you've picked
0: another historical building. I mean, we know of Triskel Art Centre, but this is... Is, in, is this church on the same site?
2: Yes, yeah, so there's been a church on that site for over 900 years and um our so our piece is uh, called Tempus Futurum and it's a 10-minute projection mapped piece on the facade of what is now the Triskel Arts Center and the piece focuses on the past, the present and the future of Cork in general but more specifically that um more specifically that site. Um, and while it's not meant to be uh, an accurate um, historical piece that you might find in a museum, it, it does have visual touch points on various things that would have been there over the past and then the elements that might be there in the future.
1: Uh,
0: describe uh, some of the projections that you're talking about. As I said, we have tweeted a number of the images on X at RTE Arena. There's, I know there's a very lush one of trees, for example.
2: Yeah, so we wanted to look at um, what was there on the site before humans were there and before agriculture would have started and then when there was a church built who built it and um, when there was Vikings there, what might their church have looked like? And um, I think the the main thing for us was to get people thinking about how what was there before influences what is there now and what what is there now and our actions now, how they will influence that site and that area going forward and how each generation brings a layer to the tapestry that um, that is there now and and maybe get people to think about what might be there in the future. So,
0: A very interesting thing you did was get a, a, a sc- was it one school or a number of schools involved?
2: Yeah, so um, we invited 50 children from St Mary's of the Isle, which is the local national school, so the nearest national school to the Triscoll Arts Centre. And we supplied them all with a template of the building and asked them what did they feel would be there in the future or what might be there in the future. And their um, responses form part of the projection. So each of their artwork features in the in the final scene when we when we look at the future. So um, for us, it was very important to engage a school that had students from quite a diverse background um to try and get like a broad perspective on Uh, on what they might see as as what as what could be there but also um, it was important for us that sometimes by seeing your artwork on on a scale like that you know it's it might make you feel that you have a voice in that place and a voice and in the city when you see something that you've created at such a large scale.
0: Yes and uh, Niamh did did people get together at the very beginning you know that there are five artists involved the other pieces Urban Mer- uh, Mirror and Boom Nouveau um, did the artists get together and share their ideas or were you very much working independently
7: initially very much working independently and we were all invited to put forward an idea or proposal for the respective sites. Um, we did more recently within the last month get together to discuss the process and discuss the outcome and I have even a discussion with the City Council and arts officers or how these works speak to each other, really, as much as they speak to place and to idea and to site, which was really rather lovely. It's not something you get to do very often with public artworks. Yes, that's the thing, too, Fiona. Mm.
0: You know, like public art costs so much and it really is hard to make an impression yes. because you're talking about either urban landscapes or, or roadways.
6: And what is interesting uh, also about this project is that it has a certain amount of time. It's for five years that the individual works are are on site. There isn't the in often in public art. It's for it's permanent, you know, so it allows for a bit more playfulness and um, adventure and risk um, that it's not something, you know, that had to be there, you know, permanently.
0: I guess, and I guess you're inviting people to go down to court uh, to walk around the streets and experience this for themselves.
7: Absolutely, we absolutely hope all the works are kind of fitting into that fabric of the place and people would enjoy and respond and think actually. Relatively, and
0: your project, Brian, is obviously at night.
2: Yeah, so the project starts at uh, dusk every night, and that obviously changes um, as. As the seasons go on and i think um our project will m- mostly be visible in the winter months so we were conscious of that when creating the animation that we would create animation that was bright and dynamic and vibrant and the driscoll is quite an interesting building in that it's slightly stepped back off the street so you come across it almost like a surprise so on a dark and dreary uh night like we're we have in, in january that you know, someone might come across it and it's just uh, it's, it's something vibrant and, and bright.
0: Well, my thanks to artists Neve McCann, Fiona Mulholland and Brian Kenny for coming in to tell us about Island City Cork Urban Sculpture Trail which will be in situ for the next five years, giving you plenty of time to go and visit, but don't leave it too late. Further details at corkcity.ie forward slash Island City. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Paula Shields and Liam Murphy. James Feeney was on sound. Ali Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator and tonight's show was produced by Reg Luby. And John Creedon is up next after the news.